This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing Tar. I'll kick us off. Tar stars Kate Blanchett as the film's namesake, a conductor who loves music but struggles with people. As her wife Sharon puts it, her relationships are invariably transactional, and these transactions tend to be in the service of the music. The marriage itself is founded on a transaction. When Tar first arrived to conduct in Berlin, Sharon helped her manage the orchestra's internal politics. Sharon's advice allows Tar to govern the orchestra. Without it, Tar tends to make unilateral decisions that anger the orchestra's members. Sometimes she picks new, inexperienced players over established stars. Tar believes her favorites are the best, but the players often suspect she picks young women she considers sexually attractive. It seems clear to me that Tar is attracted to these women precisely because she thinks they are enormously talented. Tar takes a shine to a young cellist named Oga. She decides to have a cello solo, but instead of assigning the solo to the star cellist, she has the cellist's audition. The bigwigs all get together and listen to the cellists from behind a curtain in an effort to rid their impressions of unconscious bias. All present agree that Olga's performance is the strongest, but the decision to make this decision by audition deeply alienates not just the star, but many of the other players who regard this procedure as unorthodox and illegitimate. They frame it as illegitimate because Tar is clearly motivated in part by attraction to Olga. This is a factor, but on a more fundamental level, they think it is illegitimate because it forces someone who has earned her place to compete with someone who is not. At another stage in the film, Tar pushes out a veteran player in favor of another favorite newcomer. Here, the decision is again illegitimate in two ways. It appears motivated by favoritism, and it involves disloyalty to a long-standing performer. Most of the commentary on this film focuses on the favoritism and on the acceptability of workplace relationships. But I think this personal stuff only gets so much attention in this orchestra because it comes alongside other violations of the expectations of the players. When Tar has a falling out with one of her favorites, she blackballs the girl, and the girl eventually commits suicide. People watching this film focus on the romantic dynamic, but what ultimately makes the blackballing so offensive is that this girl was by all accounts extremely talented. By blackballing this girl, Tar betrayed the first principle, good music, for purely self-serving reasons. In all the other cases, Tar can argue with some justification that her favoritism and the music are in alignment. But in all of these cases, she neglects the politics of the orchestra. Those who neglect political considerations are never ultimately able to realize the good. No matter how talented we are, or how right we are, if we get the politics wrong, if we mismanage power dynamics with other people, we will not ultimately be able to sustain excellence. In some institutions, the politics is simple, and in others, it's more complicated. There is a widespread feeling that when it comes to the professional workplace, the politics has become more complicated in recent years. There's a kind of legitimacy crisis, with people in positions of power finding that the techniques previous generations used to run institutions are no longer effective. This is not because the rules have simply changed. If it was just a matter of new rules, they could be learned. The problem is that there is a normative vacuum. The rules are increasingly informal and unclear. This is an especially nasty problem for someone like Tar. She is rather fixated on music and doesn't tend to pay attention to many other things. This is part of what makes her a great conductor in the abstract, but in practice, her greatness gets in the way of her success. 
Success is a prerequisite for greatness. So if a person who is great at something cannot succeed, we are faced with an interesting contradiction. As the politics becomes more complicated, someone like Tar is increasingly adrift. She is too good at conducting to be anything but a conductor, but she is also too good at conducting to succeed as a conductor. In this way, she is both the ideal conductor and a failed conductor. Plato explores this paradox through the character of Socrates. Socrates is both the ideal philosopher and a failed philosopher, insofar as he is killed because he is unable to deal with Athenian politics. This, for Plato, is the key problem. Athens can make a Socrates, but it cannot keep one. The solution for Plato is for the philosopher to also be a ruler, to have the philosopher regard politics as an essential condition for the pursuit of the good. It cannot be neglected or treated as beneath the philosopher's station, because without the right kind of politics, the possibility of philosophy is extinguished. The question this film poses is what kind of politics is necessary for people to do great things? What we are currently doing clearly doesn't work, but it is not possible to return to the rules and norms under which previous great things were produced. Those rules and norms no longer enjoy the legitimacy that is necessary to operate by them. It is precisely because Tar attempts to operate as if the old rules and norms were in place or might yet be restored that she fails totally. But the other option, the option of shrugging at the mediocrity the present system encourages, is no option at all. All right, let's hear what Helen has to say. Yes, yeah, so a really interesting film um, and interesting that a film like this, or, well, I have sort of an, an, an ambivalent idea about this point as well. Um, interesting that a film uh, deals with cancel culture and is being celebrated and deals with it in an ambivalent way. You know, Zizek wrote a piece um, that Nina shared with us on, um, on this film, and he talks a lot about... Uh, the ambivalence of uh, its treatment of cancel culture. And depending on the way you read this film, it could be sort of a celebration or um, uh, a critique. Um, but it is it does say something about um, the changing nature of culture at the moment. And obviously, you know, people are being re really materially squeezed. So there is this question of, well, often when um, the issues of capitalism are at their worst, then sort of a surge towards identity um, signifiers increases, but maybe there's a point where things get bad enough that we are forced to confront them as they are, the uh, situation, the conditions as they are, rather than we as we wish them to be. So potentially we've reached a sort of like a a, a tipping point where even within the culture, um, the cover stories for um, poor material conditions are being. Um, addressed in different ways. And I'm working on a film at the moment and the um, studios express kind of, um, well, they set the film up in such a way that it would not be quote unquote woke. So maybe we are, we are moving beyond a woke period of time. And this film has got um, a lot of um, critical acclaim within um, main, the mainstream. So that says, that says something, but um, I'm going to sort of follow on to that point to complexify it in a second. Another um, idea that I really liked also um, in the film, but this was something that was expressed by Zizek as well in his piece, was um, this idea of um, not only the ambivalence of how it treats its subject matter, but sort of the ambivalence in terms of the way that the story is told. So um, in some ways, it seems quite uh, rational and realistic, almost doc documentary like there's obviously um, a passage where uh, we see um, a performance on a videotape. So there's some kind of like 
realism incorporated within the, the, the tone of the film, but it does sort of degenerate in a way um, in style and tone towards something that could be um, more uh, seen as interpretative or perspectival, sort of subjective. Um, and so this idea of, um, as Shijo pointed out, could this be a ghost story? How real is this cancellation or how much is this to do with Lydia Tarr's uh, fantas- uh, fantastical inner world? And um, so in a sense, not only is this film about cancel culture on an explicit level, but it's also haunted by cancel culture, haunted by um, Lydia's libidinal relationship to her own cancellation. And this, I think, does speak to the fact that over previous years, cancel culture has sort of haunted us as, you know, um, well, anyone within society, within discourse, anybody who's got a remote, remotely public platform or anyone in the professional sphere that we we fear this cancellation. But this sort of fear of cancellation also speaks to potentially a libidinal investment in cancellation and the idea that potentially, um, precisely because uh, material conditions don't allow us to flourish um, intellectually or creatively, or um, maybe we feel restricted by um, the ideology of the market system, we can um, enjoy the fantasy of uh, being a flourishing genius precisely because of cancel culture. So we can imagine if it wasn't for cancel culture then, or, you know, if I'm cancelled, I'll lose everything. But that loss is basically like a, a world, uh, 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 a kind of a life I would have led were it not for the cancellation. So cancel culture can serve a purpose not only to materially uh, quiet people who point out the contradictions within um, the cultural response to material conditions, but also can sustain a sort of satisfaction within the material conditions by getting us to enjoy um, a future that is barred from us. So I think cancel culture serves like a multiplicitous sort of purpose. Um, but it's interesting, though, because we talked about genius last week, and this is obviously a film about a genius, and she's like an egot or whatever. This is somebody who's, that's, you know, really depicted at the beginning of the film as um, a very, very important, um, incredibly talented person. And I'm I'm in Prague at the moment, and uh, there's a big thing in the city about Kafka, um, because Kafka, Kafka was based here or whatever. And it's interesting, obviously, um, there's a sort of this weird capitalist reproduction in various cities where they get tied to um, certain people or certain things. In my home city, it's the Titanic. Like everything's about the fucking Titanic, even though t- the Titanic was a failure. You know, we have a Titanic ca- hotel, a Titanic quarter, Titanic museum, Titanic bars, Titanic whatever. And here it is, Catholic. But it made me think about what, you know, it's funny that people can come to Prague and be like, Oh, I sat in the cafe where pra- uh, Kafka used to have his discussions with his fellow writers, or I can visit his house or whatever. And there is this sort of, you know, we talked a lot in previous episodes about the fetish of genius. And genius is sort of like a, an emergent of this sort of liberal, quote unquote, meritocratic, um, quote, you know, a, a capitalist ideology that you can be like this sole individual who um, is extraordinary and unlike anyone else and closer to the transcendent and has some kind of a specific kind of extreme worth that other people don't have. But actually, interestingly, you know, I was just thinking about it in Prague. It's like one thing is, though, aside from, you know, being being sold a key ring, a Kafka key ring or something, you know, you can actually go and visit the places that created the person. So, um, you know, you can you can experience in a way the more material because the genius is not a genius out of out of its own context, its own, own context. 
but rather an emergent, you know, somebody who's talented and brilliant, you know, there's, um, there's still uh, material conditions that create that. So sometimes like, you know, actually visiting these things is quite interesting in a way. Um, But yeah, so, but but this idea of of, of genius or thwarted genius, you know, I'm not quite so on on board with. um, And I think the idea of the thwarted genius ties into this sort of ideology of the genius. And we can imagine in sort of Lydia's cancellation or the cancellation that people might experience that um, the contingent difficulties and contradictions and unfairnesses of life, where it's very unlikely that we are to be fulfilled and recognized as a genius, even if one were actually very talented and brilliant or whatever. Um, and we, we, we transform those contradictions into oppositions. Um, and these oppositions lead to a, continu- a continuation of this ideology of, you know, individualism and, um, and, uh, uh, transcendence and the ideology of promise and everything like that. But I kind of wanted to talk about um, the similarities between the cancellation within the film and the response to the, the movie in terms of its the critical acclaim it has garnered. Because in some ways, the way that things like the Oscars and all these prizes function is like the same but different or like the inverse of cancel culture. So often like anything that happens in a society that happens on sort of this swarm-like, um, crowd-like um, societal level in terms of um, abjection or ecstasy, um, often when you look back at it uh, several years, 20 years, whatever, however many years later, you realize that there was no truth in it, or there was a little bit of truth in it, but it was um, taken to an extreme that doesn't really reflect reality. You know, you can look at um, the response, Islamophobia in the response to 2003 as an example, that these things, these humans take go, go on this sort of demented sort of um, swarm-like um, surges in libidinal energy uh, you know, taking down one group or seeing one group or one person as specifically bad, or inversely, often with the Oscars, precisely because um, a film might capture zeitgeist in some way, elevate something to the status of um, transcendent and magical. And the thing is, this isn't to say that sometimes some people do bad things and we need to address them, or sometimes a film is very, very good or a work of art is very, very good. But often, and this is this is to do with human subjectivity and also the way that capitalism um, thrives on sort of parasitically the denatured nature of human subjectivity, that it, it offers constantly these promises, you know, and this promise is reflected not only in the promise of transcendence in achieving an object or celebrating something that, you know, can offer, we can say this is a work of genius. And um, we think, you know, like, oh, this person potentially of a certain identity group or with certain um, subjectival limitations or, um, uh, you know, or um, skills can offer us some message and we need to hear it. We need to go and see it and we need to rise it up, you know, uh, rise it up. And on the other side, there's the sort of purity thing of like this person's bad and terrible. And as long as we get rid of them, then everything will be perfect. And this is obviously to do with um, the the fact that humans are denatured in terms of subjectivity. So we don't, we, we invest in things always on a slightly transcendent level because we are we are marked by the unconscious we are marked by lack because of our second birth into language so we're but we're born materially into the world we live with our mothers until a certain point you know we are fetuses that are um 
we're external fetuses effectively part of her body, then we separate. And that separation, which is necessary to create language and create subjectivity, means that we're marked by this sense that we've lost something. And a sense of loss leads us to, um, you know, uh, ecstasy and also um, the opposite of ecstasy, which we might call like um, purity or, you know, bleaching our world. But these sort of like excessive reaches in one way or the other. Um, this film I'm working on at the moment is about um, Tammy Faye Baker. And um, when you see what happened to Jim Baker, you know, this is a real example. And basically in the, this period of time that he was uh, working in the in the 70s and 80s, there was these wider sort of phenomena within culture that are part of the, um, the, you know, the denatured nature of human subjectivity. See, this is, you know, sometimes I feel like maybe people will think that I'm too critical of capitalism because a lot of what I criticize in capitalism has existed in all sorts of different orders of things. And that's absolutely true. You know, you have witch hunts, you have um, purity, you have um, crusades, you have these things, you know, humans are beings of excess. But the thing is, that's particularly difficult about capitalism, why it's so alienated, is it um, feeds off this particular tendency. And there aren't really often checks and balances to make sure that we're not sort of um, screwing ourselves over by going dementedly after these things in terms of the sort of religious ecstasy and fervor kind of thing. But basically, you know, but it's simply there's many different trends going on in, in, in culture at the time. But basically, you have Jimmy Carter coming into the presidency and he's an evangelical, calls himself an evangelical, but he's a, a Democrat and a kind of Democrat that's actually very kind of like Christian socialist. This really, I mean, this is really oversimplifying it. So there's so many different other factors, but this, this alienates and angers and threatens, um, the, uh, religious people who are actually, um, not of that ideology. And so the, uh, moral majorities formed the religious right. They promote Reagan. And this leads to sort of a liberal, um, you know, coastal sort of often journalistic, um, educated class of people to feel extremely threatened by, um, this sort of deplorable rise of the uh, moral majority and the support of Reagan. And they, they um, seek to take down, or not, not consciously, but there's this sort of fear and this sense of responsibility in needing to sort of discipline this and take this down. And Jim and Tammy, who actually didn't fall really into either camp because they weren't part of the moral majority, they, forced, um, uh, they decided not to participate, um, became the sort of easy targets of this uh, reaction against this moral majority. And they sort of get caught up in this culture war. And Jim Baker is accused of all kinds of things that um, at the end of the day, it's it's unclear whether he he did these things to certainly not to the extent that he was accused of. And he was sent to prison for 45 years for something like relatively minor overselling timeshares, quote unquote, except they weren't really timeshares. But anyway, um, but the point being is when you look back at this, uh, you know, 30, 40 years later, even people who were there at the time, you know, will be like, well, that was pretty excessive. Well, that was really not, you know, fair or whatever. So the point being is we, we can't really overcome this tendency, this overinvestment, because humans, by definition, overinvest because we lack. And as human subjects, we are going to do these excessive things. It's part of what makes life exciting. You know, we get turned on by things, we get thrilled by things, but we also, um, have this tendency to want to purify and to transcend. And in this film, this is a, a film um, that deals, you know, in an ambivalent way, but, you know, also a critical way with cancel culture, which I think is this um, purity aspect of the human um, uh, subject's uh, tendency to want to assuage their lack. And then maybe the um, celebration, or not necessarily of this film, but the, the culture around um, 
uh, film awards and prestige is on that other side, that sort of um, promise of fulfillment through transcendence, through um, prestige and the ideology of the genius and all this kind of thing. But at the end of the day, what do we do? You know, we we still are always going to be endowed with this sort of um, uh, this impetus. But as in the same way as I would be critical of capitalism, is that capitalism sort of um, unthinkingly taps into this drive. And perhaps a way to address the toxicity of capitalism is to understand consciously, to bring the unconscious to consciousness in terms of how it functions. And um, so, yeah, we should still enjoy our films and maybe... I'm, you know, I don't think um, we should be so critical of people that we want to cancel, but this is something that we should bear in mind. Um, and we can't get rid of, um, we can't get rid of this sense, but we can come to terms with it. And maybe coming to terms with it will sort of lower the stakes on wanting to cancel people so crazily. Um, so I think the film was very good, but potentially not quite so excessively good as the ideology of prestige and awards would have us believe. All right, let's hear what Nina has to say. Well, I was very struck by this film. And uh, since I've seen it, I've been thinking about it every day uh, in a kind of unprompted manner, which I, I think is very unusual for contemporary cinema. Um, I have lots of things I'd, I'd like to say about this film, and I'll try to say as many of them as I can in a, in a, in a brief way. My first response on seeing the film was, was one of um, positive shock in the sense that I felt that this film was, was made for adults, by adults. Um, it is a film that is deeply ambiguous. Um, it feeds you lots of half stories. It's partly a film about uh, genius. It's partly about COVID. It's partly about... Um, me too. It's partly about what it is to be a woman uh, in a man's world. Uh, it's partly about the specificity of a particular character. Kate Blanchett is fantastic in this film, I would say. She's quite uh, leonine uh, in her character. Her, her, you know, they've created together with Todd Field, the director, uh, an extraordinary uh, figure. Uh, I think, and there's been much speculation about whether this character is based on anyone in real life, and I, I think that's a, a dead end. Um, I think they created a huge backstory. Listening to some of the interviews with Blanchett and Field, um, talking about the character, um, they uh, created an entire backstory, which isn't really in the film. There's a tiny scene towards the end where Tar, after being disgraced, returns to her family home in Staten Island. Um, and uh, it's very obvious that she comes from a humble background. Her brother uh, addresses her as Linda Tar. Her name is Tar with a double R. Um, so Lydia is a, is a creation, a construction uh, based on a carefully uh, controlled set of images and desires and fantasies. And we see this right down to her like bespoke suits. She gets her suits made. She wants to emulate the composer on the cover. She takes partly her inspiration from her predecessors in the conducting world, uh, most of whom are male, but she mentions female conductors in the very long interview with Adam Gopnik, who plays himself in the New Yorker um, discussion. 
Um, I thought this film was a real uh, sort of line in the sand or sort of planting a flag uh, for the serious uh, and adult end of Hollywood. It was as if to say um, we've had enough of uh, this kind of literalist ideology. Um, uh, there's a sort of famous scene that was pre-circulating or circulating for quite a long time that was clipped out of the movie, um, which is representative, but I actually don't think is 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 that significant. But it's where she's um, teaching at Juilliard and she uh, criticizes this young man who 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 I think identifies as a, a kind of a pansexual bipoc. Um, uh, where he's wearing, uh, or they, or whatever, is wearing uh, a nail polish, um, and he says he he's uh, got a problem with uh, uh, with Beethoven or Bach. I think if, yes, it's Bach um, because of his uh, per- the perception that his sexual mores, or it's his personality, was uh, somehow. Um, uh, not contemporaneous in a positive sense, right? There's a, you know, the, the classic question of the relationship between art and uh, the artist, um, which in recent years has been dealt with in a very kind of moralistic way, as if we should not read or watch things by people who have uh, done or been accused of of doing things. But like I say, I don't think this film is, it, it flirts with being about seven different types of film, right? This is part of its intelligence. It also treats the audience with a great deal of respect, I think, in a way forcing them to sit through conversations that... Um, it don't really give you much context. She has various, not only the New York, uh, New York, New York interview, but conversations with uh, other conductors, and you know we're, we're sort of thrown in and we're given small pieces of information, um, but we're never really told the whole story. Um, I think it, how, how to put this. I, I sort of made some uh, notes. <laughs> um, I think uh, yeah, the, the, I wanted to say this thing about. Partly what's going on, I think, in this uh, assumption or assertion of intelligence on the part of the audience, right? It marks a sea change in cinema. I think it's a very positive move. I think the fact that we uh, see Tar kind of all the time and we only get glimpses into the other people in her life. As Benjamin mentioned, it's clear that she uh, treats many of her interactions as... um, uh, transactional, uh, but she's incredibly motivated by our cause or the cause, and this is uh, mentioned in Zizek's um, piece uh, that he wrote for Compact Magazine, which I sort of have to mention, um, <laughs> which is a very interesting piece, got some very interesting claims. Um, she's dr- extremely driven. She, um, uh, nevertheless, there's a sense in the film that there is. This is not the whole story. The film, because of its um, short. Uh, shortcuts, right? Nothing is ever kind of fully explored. It's partly, you know, a ghost story, a psychological thriller, cancel culture, feminism, Me Too, all these things at once, and and a COVID story as well. Uh, but never fully any one of those. And so I I think actually what's going on. Uh, some some people have already interpreted it as a kind of dream sequence or as a kind of um, you know, sometimes that can be very disappointing. Oh, it was all a dream. Uh, but I think actually the interest, more interesting, uh, uh, maybe provocation in the reading um, is mentioned by Zizek in that piece. Um, and it's a quote from um, a, uh, uh, where is it? Um, 
somebody who uh, I can't tell, I can't find it now. But basically, the one of the reviewers said that it's not a dream, but it's a fantasy, right? So when we want something so badly, right? So the Marla Five, the Marla Five is is the culmination of Tar's entire trajectory, right? Like this is her end goal. She wants to record this desperately, you know, in order to, in a way, complete the mastery. Okay, and remember that she wants to be called Maestro not maestra. She says, we don't call them astronauts, we call them astronauts. So she accepts um, her place in a kind of patrilineal uh, co- series of conductors, right? So, and, and at one point to the small child who's been bullying her adopted daughter, she says, I'm the father, right? So, so Tar has no problem with accepting, or if you like, she embraces, she dresses in a masculine way. Um, she's obviously a lesbian, but again, this is not a, a lesbian film. Um, you know, although that's, that's part of, of who she is. Um, but again, she's relatively indifferent, as she says, against the identitarian student, precisely. It's not important, right? What is important, and this is what I think the film is ultimately about, is this subsumption, what it means actually to, to uh, fulfill your drive, um, if you like, is there are two options, and both are presented in the film, one of which is the the... Um, the total attempt at control and mastery, which is Tar's option, which also, um, and this is the tweet I can't find, but it's basically the suggestion is that her fantasy, because it's so strong, this is what she wants to do, that it ultimately, uh, libidinally, and I think Helen is right, like taps into her desire for self-destruction, right? So one way of reading the film is that Really, don't get the thing you want. The thing you want, the Mala Five, um, will actually destroy you. And in a way, you will self-destruct or something will happen. All of these things that Benjamin identified in terms of her uh, behavior and the inconsistencies in her commitment, both to her libido in the sexual sense, but also to musicality and her, and her willingness to sacrifice, particularly Krista, uh, who is who haunts the movie. Literally, you can see Krista in certain scenes. Uh, for example, the redhead at the, is is at the back of the auditorium um, in the New Yorker talk, and people have identified scenes where the ghost uh, there is a ghost. Uh, Tar also suffers from misophonia. She hears. Uh, She's very sensitive to sound and she also hears sounds. There are lots of kind of creepy, almost, again, it's almost a horror film. It's, uh, you know, scenes where she's woken in the night and things are out place, things are making noise. She's kind of being stalked, uh, we would say. Krista, her former student, commits suicide. Um, and this ultimately, in a way, leads to Tar's, Tar's downfall and, and her kind of use and abuse of people is sort of revealed in the current climate, in the context. Um, and again, the one simple solution or one simple um, reading of the film would be to say, oh, this is about whether men and women are treated the same or differently if they commit the same crime, as it were. Okay, because there are many conversations early in the film she has with older male professionals in the music industry that are about kind of Me Too issues that basically say some men were punished and some men weren't. And some people are still kind of worried or they say, oh, no, I'm too old now to be Me Too. It's not going to happen to me. You know, so there's a kind of very deep awareness of, of perhaps the contingency um, sometimes or the fact that some people are punished more heavily than others, um, as, as Helen uh, noted. Um, I think as somebody who has been sort of partly cancelled, <laughs> I probably found this film uh, very uh, a, a bit more um, acute than other people might have done in some ways. And I think 
the libidinal aspect is also revealed to me in my real life when people sometimes want to associate me because they like the frisson of being cancelled. They like the, the fantasy, right? This goes back to this self-destructive idea that there is a desire actually to destroy precisely um, the thing that you think you want, right? So when she goes to the, when she's been disgraced and she's, um, uh, ends up uh, conducting this uh, computer game uh, thing in a, a Southeast Asian country. I'm not sure which which one. Um, she goes to a for a massage and she's presented with uh, it's a and it's a kind of really weird place. It it, it seems like between a brothel and a, a massage parlor. Um, a girl is there. A whole series of girls in something called a fishbowl, and the girl who looks up at her has the number five on her jacket, like Barla's fifth. And Tar runs outside and uh, is is sick. Um, the other main theme I just want to finish on this throughout the film is her the reference to these people that she studied as a musicologist, um, and uh, these are people who are um, have a very different way of making music. Um, they are uh, in uh, Peru. Uh, she studies with the Shipibo Conibo tribe. Um, and at the beginning, we hear a sound, uh, a recording of this uh, uh, music made by um, these uh, people. Um, and they're singing a particular kind of song called an Ikaro, which she discusses at a certain point. Now, the interesting thing is that the Ikaro arrives through a sort of spiritual process where the spirits speak to you. This is one model of what it is to be creative, which is to say to be a kind of passive receiver of um, something that does that exists outside of you and that you can't control, but you can channel. Okay, this is one mode of um, creativity. And all the way through the film, there's a discussion about ego dissolution, um, as well as masks. So it's very interesting that Tar defends, um, nevertheless, her, her desire to control is also works alongside her um, promotion or defense, if you like, of ego dissolution as the sole and only practice for what it is to channel works um, and to play music and to conduct music. So she says at various points, you have to uh, make way, you have to step aside for something uh, that's kind of greater than you, if you like, you have to kind of completely subsume yourself. When Tara is sitting at her piano, she's trying to write composition. She's endlessly interrupted by um, maybe a real bell, maybe a kind of uh, hallucination. Um, she's haunted by um, Krista and the death of Krista and this kind of potential spirit who is blocking her way to creativity. Right. And I think what this film is really about is that is this question, which is a kind of serious question about what creativity actually is, is whether it involves the total subsumption of ego or ego dissolution such that you become a, a, a sort of instrument or a medium for uh, inspiration uh, or the spirits, however you want to put it, um, or whether one can actually become, if you like, a genius and successful simply by following the rules. And this is a kind of fundamental uh, question for aesthetics and goes back to our conversations about genius. Um, I, I think uh, the just to finish, the other form of ego death, which is presented in the film as a possible option is cancellation, right? So, so she is tarred and feathered, literally, <laughs> right? She is shamed. She cannot um, complete her desire. Her other desires have gotten in the way and, and in the culture, she's viciously punished. She's, she's basically ostracized and exiled. Um, and the cancel culture aspect in this sense returns as a question of, of 
ego death. Um, and when I was being cancelled, uh, my friend Lewis uh, told me about this uh, uh, Muslim uh, Gnostic tribe who uh, practiced uh, what is called malamatia, which is a form of total public humiliation and shame in a bid to disavow or divest, I would say, divest people of um, worldly attachments so that their connection to God or to Allah can be restored better. Because it's a way of saying, I renounce all of these awards all of these celebrations, all of these forms of recognition, the New Yorker discussion, blah, 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 um, in, in the name of um, a, a fundamental something else, right? Like a commitment to, in this case, music or, or the drive towards, um, you know, performance and, and this expression, um, which, which continues for, for Tar, even in the wake of, of, of everything that happens, right? She doesn't give up. And I think Zizek makes this very clear as well. So, so I ultimately think this is a film about ego dissolution and the various types of ego dissolution or ego death that are possible, including uh, the more recent uh, iteration of this in the form of cancel culture. But it touches on this deeper question about what art and creativity is um, and the relationship between the ego um, and art um, in, a, in a fantastic way. And I, I highly recommend this film. I, I think it's extremely um, clever precisely because it, it refuses to be any one thing but announces all of these provocations for thought um, and is incredibly ambivalent and ambiguous in the way that I think uh, good art or great art itself um, uh, should be. Absolutely. I mean, this is where like, I probably, it's slightly wrong to say this is how I feel personally, is that art is the, like, well, good art is the highest of manifestation of, you know, human subjectivity's achievement precisely because it's ability, of its its ability to to handle con contradiction and actually contradiction marks it and, and and forms it. And so, yeah, what is one of the things that's excellent about this film is precisely its ambivalence, its contradiction, its multiplicity. And, you know, you're talking about actually this heartening thing of like, no, this is this is actually treating an audience like a, a thinking subject, which of course, <laughs> you know, we all are. Um and we haven't we have had um precisely because of the, you know, the terrain for proper contestation of politics has receded so much. And we have this sort of weird, like didactic purity, fake politics going on in culture, which means that art gets transformed into something other than art. And this has happened so much with film. And when you have these woke films that didactically tell you what the, you know, they've already decided what the right position is. And this is not, you know, to, to criticize pe those people who make those woke films per se. This is just a manifestation of material conditions. And also, um, this happens to all of us, you know, that we, we sort of feel like, Oh, I must think this in a, a certain way. I must, I've, I've come to this conclusion. This is the right conclusion, but art precisely is the space. And this is what makes it, my opinion, the highest manifestation of human thought, the place where we, we explore the the unknown the i mean it's funny because I, I she there, like okay christeva actually um has this term is it like ah oh, shit well it's like freud's ordinary unhappiness but it's like the ordinary transcendent it's like i mean because obviously i was talking about the transcendent in a critical term this sort of way that we try to totalize lack so we have lack and we try to fulfill it with something we think is magical but there's actually a transcendence in life which is contradiction itself that which cannot be um contained within sort of a binary oppositional kind of like that, that it always will be dialectic so art is that achievement and i do think this is this film this film does this and it's, it is heartening that you know these 
that this might be coming back because I think there has mm. been, you know, 2017, I think was the last good year of movies until now. I haven't seen much. I think we talked about what we'd watched in the previous year and I, I honestly couldn't think of many things, but it seems like this year we might be going back to where we were before 2017. And I do remember 2017 being an excellent year for film, like really excellent. Mm. I, I hope so. And, I, and weirdly, the film that this most reminded me of was The Northman, which is a very different film. But in the simple sense of saying, like, people, you know, adults making a film saying, this morality we're depicting bears no relation <laughs> to the one that we're sort of constrained by uh, or feel like we have been constrained by in the past few years. Um, I just wanted to to say the, the quote that I, I forgot to write down, but I found it now. It's in the Zizek piece. So Zizek quotes... Uh, Joe Bernstein, who's a New York Times writer, uh, Zizek said, Bernstein provides a very pertinent specification that Lydia's visions are, quote, a kind of hallucination or dream of personal disgrace, which therapy tells us is secretly pleasurable. Okay, and that's that's the thing that I thought was really one of the aspects I thought was really interesting, precisely because I've met so many people who express a desire to be cancelled. <laughs> and of course, they would tell me that. Right. So you also become the kind of, you know, therapist or analyst for people who, <laughs> who, in a way, like this free song. They like the idea of what it would be like to be, quote unquote, free from the fear of being cancelled by actually being cancelled. And to the extent that people in the art world will sort of pose with me for a photograph, but they'll put it on a disappearing mode, you know, so that they're kind of hinting at association, but not sort of coming out and saying, oh, well, I support Nina or whatever. Um, and it, there is this kind of, I, I suppose, you know, this desire to 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 be disgraced, you know, what it is to be, you know, publicly humiliated. I mean, of course, there's a sort of more banal, a vulgar version, which would might be sort of some sort of sexual humiliation. But I think there's a kind of social desire for this as well that a lot of people have precisely because it's like a Diogenes thing like what what would it be like to live completely without some sort of social um, conditioning or the implicit internalization of a series of norms especially if those norms become ones that you can't agree with anymore and that in fact you're secretly thinking lots of different things but you're too afraid to say them because you don't want to lose your job or whatever you know and I think a lot of people have been in this position in fact I know they have because they messaged me so <laughs> um I think Tara is also an expression of this and, and in a way she's uh she's a, an ethical monster and I I think Zizek talks about this in terms of the relationship between monstrosity and beauty um and I think it's it, you know, Kate Blanchett, because she is just stunning and and in every possible respect. And I, I think this is a you know masterful performance of a of a masterful character, which is uh I don't know. I mean, I don't care about awards and acolytes, and in a way, neither does Tar. That's the interesting thing. So if this film gets it does it matter if this film I mean, I went to this film in a massive cinema that was almost empty. You know, how can know. anybody care at this point? Marvel movies are included <laughs> in the best picture list. How can anybody care? Right. Exactly. No, but I would say these, the, the thing is that these, the, these awards function not, not on a rational level, but on a sort of religious, not just a religious level and, you know, an interesting way, but like the tox, toxic aspect of religion, you know, in a magical way. They're totally, yeah, it's irrational. I do think that the earlier parts of this film, 
are stretched longer than they need to be. The amount of sitting and listening to the talking about music, and I take the point that we're trying to treat people as adults, but we weren't just treating people as adults there. We were treating people as if they were interested in music theory or as if they are aspirant music theorists. I think it did go on a little overly long, and that's why the runtime goes out to about two hours 40. And I think this film could have had a wider impact if it was just a tad shorter with you can have a little bit of that you know, interview, but that interview just goes on and on at the beginning. And I can see a lot of people just getting put off by the opening segment of this film and not sticking it out. It it kind of overdid it in a bid to make a point. And I think uh, that was a little bit unnecessary. I, I know what you mean. I mean, I, f- I felt when I was watching it at the time that this was dragging. But actually, I think... Uh, you know, and it's difficult when, once you've decided you really like a film or a film really likes you, you, you find yourself compelled to justify every decision. <laughs> and we're theorists like you and me are the people who have the most tolerance for abstract theory. Like mm-hmm. it, as far as percentile of the general public, we're in the top point. Oh, 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 you know, one percent for tolerance for abstract theory. And if we're going, oh, it's dragging a little bit here. There's a huge chunk of thousands upon thousands of people who could have liked this film who will never get past but that. But maybe scene. it's like an aesthetic thing, you know, that people mm. like to feel the atmosphere create that maybe for, uh, precisely because you know. Like, I, I watched it with it. my mother, who's a psychotherapist, and you're not an uneducated person, yeah. you know, went to University of Chicago. And she's like, I would love to, you know, watch her conduct. I don't want to listen to her do an NPR style interview. I mean, I have to say, I personally did feel the same way. That was one of the, you know, one of the the aspects of the film that I enjoyed least. But it's yeah, it's, I I think it was uh, partly to do with a sort of um, yeah, an aesthetic to to make make it make it feel like it was a really weighty. Film. The interesting thing as well is like we haven't really seen films like this that have this sort of crossover. Um, you know, prestige cinema crossover with, I mean, you said that the cinema was nearly empty, but I'm sure it has mm-hmm. been a success, um, all things considered, you know, I financially. So. But um, since the Weinstein Company, really, because that really was doing these sort of films that were prestige films that were also highly financially successful. And obviously, Weinstein's downfall was in part to do with the changing material landscape of the film industry, that it was no longer acceptable, partly because he was no longer having the upper hand with what he was doing. But it's interesting that this is kind of... But I, I think, you know, in order to... Like, I'm going to try and defend the earlier, <laughs> the earlier scenes. I think if 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 you want to read this film as in part or as a, as a sort of hint towards a mystery film or a, a something that can be unraveled to some degree or as a kind of psychological thriller, then there are loads of clues in the uh, early discussion, right? So she talks a lot about the control of time um, she's quoting, she's literally quoting a, um, existing conductor, um, who in real life said, you, you can't start without me, right? So that there's a kind of, um, again, this kind of emphasis on control. And she talks about the two different ways. She mentions, um, Leonard Bernstein, who's our kind of hero, um, and her mentor. And when she's in trouble, she goes back and watches a film of Leonard Bernstein conducting, which is presumably what inspired her in the first place, um, which puts her much closer to Olga, who's inspired by YouTube videos um, and and who presumably comes from a similar uh, background, which is to say not an upper middle class background, the kind of which audiences in the 
that's the crowd for the New Yorker talk, right? And there's a sense in which the New Yorker talk audience is also being kind of criticized in the, you know, to some degree. It's like, well, who are the kind of people who have come to this kind of talk, if you like? Um, and I, I suppose it's there's a kind of qu- quote that she has from, from Leonard Bernstein, um, which is to do with um, what it is to be able to deal with the past. It's like, can you integrate the past or not? Like, are you haunted by it or not? Um, and I think this is poses, raises that question about Krista because, you know, the, the love affair or the relationship in which, you know, Tar not only sacrifices this girl's career, as Benjamin mentions, you know, we see flashes of emails in which uh, Tar has written negative character review, uh, you know, references uh, for this woman. She clearly intends to destroy this career, um, this woman's potential career uh, in a pet, in a way that is, is petty, right? That is, you know, cruel, uh, extremely cruel, it's clear. Uh, you see flashes of Krista's emails saying, I don't know what I did wrong, or, you know, I thought we were, you know, we had something or, you know, sort of pleading emails. Um you see also in this film, I guess, resentment. You know, it's a very good portrayal about um, ambition and status and resentment. And I think this is about, goes back to Benjamin's point about politics. It's like you can be a genius or you like, but if you don't really know how to play the game, you're going to be surrounded by people who want to take you down, right? So the assistant who doesn't get her due is, is you know, is sort of constantly watching um Tar, in a way, she's waiting to get this uh, position, assistant uh, conductor. Tar doesn't really think about it in a strategic way. And she sort of messes that whole thing up just as she messes up the cellist um, audition because she 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 takes a, a shine to this young girl, young cellist. Um, and so she creates enemies. That's the point. She 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 generates lots of people who end up being her enemies. There's a fantastic scene where she literally physically attacks the man who's taken over her, her, conduct, her conducting. And again, the question of whether this is a fantasy, you know, her her, her score, her, her conductor's score for Marla Fifth disappears from her flat. And this is not really explored in the film. It's just a thing that happens, right? This, the, her notation score is gone. Perhaps we assume that this guy somehow managed to procure it. He's somebody who wanted to... Take I took it to be the aide. I think the aide has a vendetta against her. Yeah. And as soon as the aide realizes that she's not going to get what she's looking for out of the relationship, she does everything in her power to mm-hmm. sabotage Tar. There's also these strange uh, mobile phone recordings of Tar, right? And who's making those? Is it the assistant? Is it Olga? Sometimes it seems like... I took it to it's- the assistant as well. That had to be somebody in the classroom, right? Because the mobile phone recording is is in that classroom. Yeah, so I took it to just times. be a random student yeah. in but the you classroom. Don't, you don't see, I mean, I think Shishek makes this point. You don't see anyone filming at the time, right? It's very strange. This is also a film partly about technology, right? It's it's about, you know, distraction, the fact that she ends up playing the score at the end for the for a computer game where people are dressed up. What Tara attacks is robots. You know, robots are her enemy, right? She hates robots. This word is used loads of times in the film. Um, a robot is a kind of slave, 
um, you know, she's making a comment about the slavery of people to identity politics and to their technology. But I think there's, again, this kind of horror, this creepiness of these techno scenes where someone is recording. I, I agree that sometimes it could be the assistant, but sometimes it's perhaps also Olga because she takes Olga on the trip with her in the play, in the private jet. And one of the scenes is, is of Tara asleep in the private jet and somebody texting a video saying, I don't know, something negative. Oh, she looks awful or something like this. I can't remember the exact wording. So you have the sense that like the commitment is no longer to art or to people, but to technology. Like you can get more attention and more jouissance from the nasty uh, video, you know, however unfairly edited, the nasty comment you share with your friends, then you can from any personal relationship or relation to the et eternality of art and beauty that Tar, you know, invokes. Definitely. I think that's that's a, de a definite theme in there. It's, it's a good theme. Mm. Yeah, I think the angle in the classroom is pretty far back, so it might be difficult to see. But also, if they're doing the ghost thing, it could be that the ghost took the video. <laughs> uh, yes i mean i think you know the other point about bringing in the indigenous tribe which you know which could be done very badly let's be clear right um and i don't think it is i, I actually think it's done quite well is is perhaps to say you know we in the modern world this idea of spirits and you know it's clear that 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 ta herself has participated in ayahuasca rituals right so she's somebody who has uh taken powerful entheogenics um, in relation to this this tribe in musicology, and so perhaps has an understanding of, of spirits, right? And she's now haunted by Krista, um, who won't let her go, right? Even or especially after death, and that the, the spirit is blocking her from creativity, right? Because she can't channel, you know, other spirits, or she can't channel music in the right way. Um, and I think the the parallels are sort of made you know they're hinted at at least they're not and this again is why it's a good film because it's not didactic at all you know you can take whichever thread you like in a certain sense i mean this is his first film i think as writer and director it seems quite i think he used to be an act quite well known actor didn't he top field um let right. me just google i mean it's really astonishingly assured film for somebody <laughs> Who, who perhaps hasn't made this kind of film, you know, a feature film before. I don't know. I don't know anything about him, to be honest. He's directed quite a lot. Yeah, this is okay. his, like 11th project or something. Um, oh, okay. But yeah, no, so he hasn't made anything for 16 years. Oh, wow. Up until that. But he did a film that was actually very well received called, I mean, it was very well received at the time, but it didn't, you know, it didn't make a massive dent in sort of public consciousness called Little Children with Kate Winslet um, years oh, ago. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, also, you know, the, the patterns, there are patterns, I don't know if you noticed, drawn on various bits of paper in the film, which again hint at a sort of story. And apparently they are these patterns drawn by this tribe. Um they're called Kenes. There's a very interesting thread on Twitter where someone, some random person called Kate Stan Forever has done an entire thread on the spiritual dimensions of the film, which is astonishingly good. And it just seems very random. It seems like kind of like someone uh, from the film maybe did this Twitter thread because it's like really <laughs> insightful and brilliant um, about all of these strange dim dimensions, which are just flashes on mm -hmm. the screen, right? The, the other thing I wanted to say about like the, but it's funny because it's I, something that's interesting, like when it's made by, because obviously filmmakers are 
maybe in this class of person, but the kind of lifestyle that is depicted of Lydia Tarr is just not, I mean, she just drive herself around and take her daughter to school and stuff, which I thought was like accurate, but like this scene in a private jet or whatever. I'm like, this is not the life that even the world's most successful orchestra conductor would lead. It's like much more, these people lead much, much more like middle class lives. I don't know why that always bugs me. These, because um, I, I remember watching the documentary, say, and Nicholas Winding Refn, you know, he did Drive, which is a very successful mm-hmm. film, whatever. But his wife made a documentary about the making of his uh, his next film uh, after Drive, and um, only for God forgives. And it was I remember being struck. This was because this came out when I was like relatively young. No, I mean, it was like twenty or something, maybe uh, twenty five. That at the time I thought was so old, but it isn't old if you're twenty five. It's very young remember that <laughs> but but part of the thing that struck me was like how modest their house was mm. <laughs> extremely modest i mean it was in copenhagen i don't know how expensive copenhagen is but like yeah this is it's not like these spheres are not full of you know high net worth people but i don't know why that was like bugs me but it does so we still have a couple more minutes, if anybody's got anything else. <laughs> I feel like I've said so many things, I, I don't want to keep talking. But I do like films about music. It's interesting, like, I, I find musicals quite difficult, but films about mm. music are interesting. And it's interesting, often, obviously, films about music, uh, usually within popular music. So it's interesting that, you know, it's it's classical music. But again, I think this is to do with, I don't think, you know, it's it's obviously an aesthetic choice, but I don't I don't want to just say it's just aesthetics and to make the audience sort of have this sort of uh buy into the genius and prestige of the the main character but i think it's sort of factor but it does have that effect you know um that it's within this sort of more erudite kind of kind of world i think that has this that thematically adds something it's done a little bit in too airy fairy of a way it could have been done in a way that would strike more people as convincing rather than pretentious uh, without taking away from the seriousness adultness of it Uh, it, it could have been done in a little bit more of an accessible way for uh, to get a little bit larger audience than it did. It is going to get. But a I think bit. you know, Zizek makes this interesting point in the piece where he says, you know, in a way, what if what if the Western canon, the Western classical canon, what if it just is the best in a way? Like, what if this is just you know the pinnacle of human achievement right and in a way the kind of gravitas and the seriousness that attaches to that um is kind of relevant is part of it right like not everything can be immediate not everything can be you know this is part of the thing about the distraction at the very end of the film by the way after she conducts the music for monster whatever it's called uh monster story no what's some, i don't know anything about this I can't remember the video name. something monster you know this computer game or something that you know and all the kids are dressed up in the audience as like in costume like cosplay or something like this and then after that scene the very final scene with well the credits are at the beginning but there's a very kind of aggressive uh contemporary piece of pop music that plays at the end as if to say you have a choice actually you know, you can choose this culture or you can have the other one, right? But it is a choice, right? What you spend your time listening to, what you spend your time doing is a choice and it it makes a difference. And one thing is better than another, right? And I think that's what the film is saying fundamentally or one of the things 
that some culture is better than others. What a I, I shocking thought, claim. <laughs> I thought maybe it was it was critiquing the pretension a little bit in the opening sections. I thought maybe they were kind of picking at it a little bit by doing it for so long mm. that any reasonable person would start to pick at it. It was interesting because the, the credit sequence, it's not really the done thing nowadays. And putting mm-hmm. it up front, I mean, often, you know, people do like... Gaspar Noé does really funky stuff with his opening titles yeah. that are a work of art in themselves. And it was interesting that it went on for so long. I mean, they did have the good, well, there's something about, okay, things being pretentiously small. I mean, I think I can sometimes be guilty with this where I want things to be smaller than they are on screen in terms of text because I find that if it gets bigger, it literally gives the game away too much and it doesn't seem as sort of like intriguing as it would otherwise I I thought the opening credits I thought the purpose of that was to reduce the number of people who see the film I I think straightforwardly the only reason to do that in 2023 (laughs) is to reduce the number of people who see the film to make the film target a more elite audience but it's interesting because like they um they did pack a huge number of people onto each slide so they had the they had the good grace to do that but it's interesting because the way the film was marketed like I I feel like it has been you know, presented to mainstream consciousness. So, mm. but yeah, no, I, 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 I think, yeah. yeah. But it I ends up it, through the medium of the people who comment on it. A lot of people who are reading about it, talking about it, won't see it. They'll just mm-hmm. engage with these journalistic takes on it, which I think miss a lot of what it has to contribute. I think the only credits are there so that you can listen to the song because the song is, you know, again, I think one way of doing things and that's that's kind of the point. So, so that the... The tribe music, the tribal music is, is the channeling. Yeah. It's the spirit, you know, and then it ends with the, with the pop music. So it's saying, you know, it can go in these different directions. If you like, we could I watch her do the conducting on, on some of that music. What? Yeah. We could yeah, watch her do some conducting in the opening the scene and, and do it. They could have done the titles with her conducting an orchestra <laughs> and the music playing and everyone would have put up with that. But by no, doing the black but, screen. But like, no, but the, you know, they're, they're being able to sit still is part of the point. <laughs> I do know. I feel like maybe I would have had a really different experience if I'd watched it. There's, you know, I obviously, like everybody else, watch so many movies on my phone and there's been this sort of like... Um, on your phone? Yeah. Are you yeah. insane? I know what exactly. How can you like, watch a film on your phone? How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> no, I just said, I'm not, film, this is not a moral operate. judgment. This it's is like a work. practice. An aesthetic, an aesthetic critique. How, how can you, it does as a director. Yeah, sometimes like, sometimes it is, you, cinema is all the way. But you know, to be honest, because like, it's cause when you are directing stuff or making stuff or producing stuff or whatever, yeah, you, so much of it is just on your fucking laptop because you're getting certain cuts sure, sure. and all kind of stuff. So you do so much more viewing on the small screen than the big screen. And it is like... What about the television? But your phone is no, like this big. I know, I know, I know. But, um, I, I, but I, I did... You get an it. HDMI cable, you can laptop. plug your laptop into your TV and watch it on your TV. I hate TV. Really? This, yeah. We should go back to the cinema. You have to go to the cinema. I have anyway. to go to the cinema, yes. Well, it's hard to find tar in a cinema because it won't come out to Northwest Indiana. You have to go to Chicago to see no, it. Because sure. of the yes, credits I to find it play at the beginning of the movie, cinema. that's why. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> All right. All right, we're at an hour. Thank you guys so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.